throughout history, whenever great injustices existed, youth movements have risen up to combat and end those injustices. You have organizations out there like the Centre for Bioethical Reform. Centre for Bioethical Reform. Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform. Organizations like the Centre for Bioethical Reform to receive public funds when they then use to attack a woman's right to choose. Abortion kills all kinds of people, so then all kinds of people then can join the pro-life movement to save I was talking to a young man on the streets of Toronto. I spoke with a woman named Lucy about abortion. Today we were doing choice chain in downtown Regina. By the end of the conversation, she was completely pro-life. He then walked away 100% pro-life. Completely pro-life. We should remember that each of those babies that die every day in Canada not only have the right to life that's being violated, they also have the right to our defense. Everyone regardless of their studies, is both a biologist and a philosopher. The question is, are we good at one, both, or neither? This is something that my co-host Cam asked me a while ago, and it's something that we're going to be discussing a little bit about throughout this episode, because today we're going to be focusing on being good biologists. As we defend the preborn children, we want to be good biologists. We want to know when human life begins because that, as we're going to show, is the heart, is the question that is at the heart of the abortion debate. Welcome, everyone. My name is Peter Boss, host of The Pro-Life Guys. And once again, I'm joined by my main man, my colleague, my pro-life mentor, my friend, Cameron Cote. Boom, back at it. Huh, we were invited for a second episode. This is exciting. We're not just a flash in the pan. We're not a one-hit wonder. It's not, hey there, Delilah. We are back for episode two of the Pro-Life Guys. We are still guys. We are still pro-life. We are still here for you to give you tools that you need to change minds and save lives. That's right. I was excited to do number one, and I'm even more excited to do number two, episode number two. If you haven't checked out episode number one, uh, I recommend doing it. Uh, it's where we have a discussion about why we started this podcast and what our vision is for it. Uh, on this episode, uh, like I said, I'm joined by Cam, and I feel like a really small, small person in the in the presence of a giant. Uh, we are going to be talking about the question when human life begins. I'm not a biologist. I didn't study study biology, but Cam here did. Uh, this was Cam's focus while he was at university, correct? That is correct. I did a degree in biology with a focus in genetics and developmental biology from the University of Victoria. I uh, graduated in 2013, did a directed studies program under an incredible biologist by the name of Dr. Bob Chow, um, focused on stem cell research. On, I'll offer that clarification right away. Don't get the wrong idea. Adult stem cell research. We'll have a full episode on the differences between embryonic and adult stem cell research. My project was on adult stem cell research in retinas of mice and humans trying to find retinal stem cells so that we can address some of the various ailments that um, can cause blindness and other stuff. And so it was an incredible degree. I would totally recommend biology to anybody. It's such a fascinating area of, of study and exploration. It's cool. I love biology. It's one of my great passions, great loves of life. I have transferred that into many other realms of biology. I'm a hobby um, birder. I go out and I look at different migratory birds with my lovely wife. Um, 
We have lots of in-depth conversations about different areas of biology. It's great. That is wonderful. So as we get into this, Cam, I, I think the, the big question uh, that we ought to ask, and, and with your love for biology, is a perfect one for you. Why does it matter um, from a biological standpoint and, and from an apologetic standpoint? Why does it matter when human life begins? It's such a great question, and I'm glad that we're starting episode two with this because it really is the heart of the conversation. I want to share a, a very short kind of story example that I, I learned from a great giant in the pro-life um, universe, in the pro-life sphere in North America, Scott Klusendorf, um, the executive director, founder of Life Training Institute in United States of America. He shared this story um, with me, not with me personally, but um, in conversation, in presentations that he's given. Imagine that you are at the kitchen sink. You're washing up dishes after a long day of consuming food, and your son or daughter walks up behind you. You're not looking at him or her and says to you, Daddy, can I kill this? What do you say? What do you say? He, he challenged the audience. What do you say in response? Well, what is it? Is the natural response. Because if it's a bug, if it's um, bacteria growing on something, if it's mold on their food, something like that, by all means, kill it. If it's the neighbor's dog, if it's their younger sibling, then obviously you shouldn't kill it. And so the question of whether or not a preborn child is a living member of the human species is absolutely essential. And I think that Greg Kokel, another great pro-life hero um, who works for Stand to Reason, again, another great pro-life group in the States, really ties it together really well when he says, if the preborn are not living members of the human species, then no justification for abortion is necessary. If the preborn are not human, then no justification for abortion is necessary. On the flip side, if the preborn are living members of the human species, then no justification for abortion is adequate. Because when else do we directly and intentionally kill living members of the human species, particularly those as innocent, defenseless, and vulnerable as, as preborn children? And, and the last way that I like to think about it is this. What if we're right? What if we're wrong? If we're wrong, if, if abortion doesn't kill an innocent human being, then we're a bunch of pricks, right? Like, like we are jerks, and there's a growing number of jerks, um, particularly young women and men who are jerks because they are trying to prevent mothers across our country and around the world from doing a procedure that's no worse than cutting your fingernails or clipping your hair or, or having your appendix removed. However, if abortion does kill an innocent human being and pro-lifers are right, the pro-life worldview is correct in that abortion is a human rights violation, then in Canada, like we talked about last week, over 4 million pre-born children have been directly and intentionally killed systematically because of their age through government-funded facilities and procedures. That question, Cam, of whether we're right or whether we're wrong is something that I've asked a good number of people on the streets, especially people who, when you ask them what their thoughts are on abortion, uh, are kind of apathetic, indifferent, don't really care 
um, you know, will will humor you in a conversation, but only while they have time. Uh, but once I've asked that question, a good number of people actually started to take the conversation seriously, recognizing that if the position that they hold is right, um, then what I'm doing is completely wrong. But on the flip side, if the position that I'm holding is right, that the preborn are in fact human being, then their position is something that they need to reject. And so that's really helped me on the streets having conversations with people. Totally. And and something that I ask people all the time. So I, in conversations that I have at high schools and universities, time and time again, I have people say to me, you'll never change my mind. And and my go-to response isn't necessarily want to bet. I mean, that that's what I want to say. <laughs> but like, I, I want to say that, but I know that I can. I mean, we're out here to win people, not not arguments like we talked about last week. But... What my response is, is what if I told you how to change my mind on abortion? And they say, no, you would never change your mind on abortion. And I say, no, no, there's a very, very easy way to change my mind on abortion. You prove to me that the preborn are not living humans. Because I will admit, if they are not living members of the human species, actively, currently living members of the human species, then abortion is totally okay. I give up my sign. I join your side. Um, I'll probably keep my shirt on. Thank you very much. But I'll I'll join your side. And and that's something that that I, I say to a ton of people. And they say, really? That's all it would take? And there's a lot of people that start a conversation at that point. And so, yeah, I think this is such a good point to get people to focus on um, when it comes to winning people towards the pro-life worldview. So you studied biology. Now, this is a conversation that we have at CCBR quite often. Uh, when human life begins, we want to learn more about it, be more intellectually uh, prepared for the conversations we have on the streets. But is the conversation of when human life begins a discussion that's happening uh, amongst biologists, um, you know, in the world of science, in your in your university classroom? No, no, it's not. I, I got to be completely honest. It, it is not a conversation that anybody has in any kind of coherent, rational, exploratory kind of way. I remember, so I, I did this degree at UVic, and I remember in first year, um, I, I've always been, not always, but while I've been in university, ever since university, should I say, um, I've, I've been fairly public about my pro-life worldview. And I've always been fairly outspoken on different issues. And I'm fairly outspoken. I was that annoying kid in university that would like put my hand up and ask questions and answer questions constantly. Like I was that guy that in some ways was your get out of jail free card whenever your professor asked a question because I would try to answer it. But I'd also be that annoying guy constantly asking questions. And I remember... We, we, love, and, we, we love and hate you, Karen. We love and hate <laughs> you. <laughs> um, and I remember people, once they realized that I was pro-life they would try to bait me and try to prove to me that um, abortion didn't kill a human being. And so in first year, they would start asking the question um, to the first year biology professors, hey, when does human life begin? And, and there'd be a bit of a puzzled look on the professor's face, and they'd respond with a very intellectual answer. Well, this is how we know through the process of fertilization that human life begins at fertilization. We're not here to talk about any social or political stuff. That's when human life biologically begins. Come second year, those same people would try to ask the same questions and it would put the, the professor on pause. Like, really? Oh, well, uh, I'm surprised you didn't learn this in first year. Here's how we know that human life begins at fertilization. I remember somebody asked that in third year biology and developmental biology of, of all things. They asked this question and the teacher just stared them down. The prof was just like, really? You're in third year biology? 
and you don't know when human life begins? Like, like what are you even doing here? Like, are, are you auditing this course? Like, it was just such a, I mean, he was a little bit of a, a rude professor anyway, so it wasn't just tailored to them, but um, this, this was a reality. And, and no, people are not having an active discussion as to when human life begins. With that said, I, so I, I think that there's a really interesting paper. I was doing a little bit of research on this, trying to confirm this fact that this is not up for discussion at all. And I came across a really interesting paper from 2018 by a guy named Stephen Andrew Jacobs. He's part of the, the Comparative Human Development Department at the University of Chicago. And he put together this study asking not only who should we ask as to when human life begins, but also what do those people say? And so what he did was he, he started um, the study by polling a huge number of Americans, just the general public. Who do you think should say when human life begins? And an overwhelming majority of those people said that it should be decided by biologists, by, ex by experts in the, the realm of biology. 81% of people said that. 7% of people said that it should be decided by um, lawmakers. 7% of people said that it should be decided by religious figures. Seven, uh, a couple percent of people thought that it should be decided by the Supreme Court or by politicians or by there's some other category that was super random. Um, but like the vast majority of Americans had their heads screwed on straight. And uh, that, that's encouraging, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, totally. Um, and and said, um, you know what? It, it should be up to biologists. And so the second step of this study um, said, OK, well, let's go to the biologists and, and let's see what they have to say about when does human life begin? And so this guy and, and the people working, I'm, I'm sure that he didn't make all the phone calls himself, but he pulled 5,502 biologists from 1,058 different academic institutions across America. These were people from all different walks of life, born in 86 different countries. And he asked them about the validity of the statement um, when does human life begin? This was the question he asked them. And what the result showed was that 95% of those people, 5,212 of them, 5,212 out of 5,502 of these people acknowledged human life begins at fertilization. Now, what a lot of people are probably going to say is like, Okay, well, he probably just went to all those Christian universities, you know, those, those Christian universities like Notre Dame that have Barack Obama speak annually, and those Christian universities like Gonzaga that are having all sorts of nonsense taught at their universities. I'm sure, I mean, there, there's great stuff out there. I'm sure that, that um, the so-called Christian universities of America aren't all bad, um, but you only have to look into the news to see the kind of stuff that they're supporting and enabling and, and all that kind of stuff. But you might think that all of these biologists were clearly pro-life if, if they were saying such overwhelmingly that, that human life begins at fertilization. But no, he got them to do a self-identification. How would they um, constitute their own worldview, their political views, all that sort of thing. And what they found was that 63% of those biologists polled self-identified as non-religious. 89% of them identified as being liberal, small L liberal. They're Americans. They don't have the Liberal Party of Canada, um, thankfully. Um, 
89% of them identified as liberals, 92% of them identified as aligning with the Democratic Party of America, and 85% of them identified as being pro-choice supporters. Wow. So there's no chance that that people can say these are pastors that are doing this. No, no, these, these are <laughs> right. not pastors. These are people who are working in wide varieties of secular environments um, within different biology, both academic and privatized environments. Yeah, th- these, these are not pastors. These are not bishops. These are not um, religious nutcases. These are people who are experts within the field. I mean, 95% of them had a PhD, at least one PhD in biology. These people know what they're talking about. And what are they saying? They are saying overwhelmingly that human life begins at fertilization. This is not up for debate with them. This is something that I'm sure they were perplexed. Why am I getting this phone call? I'm researching like nanotechnology for cancer treatment and like all sorts of other very important questions. Why is this guy calling me and asking me when human life begins? Like, didn't he go through grade seven? Like, I don't know. I mean, people ask me all the time. Uh, they don't ask me when they find out, oh, you have a degree in biology. That's so cool that you get to work within your field. You get to apply your degree every every day that you're at um, at work having conversations with people. And I, I smile to them and I kind of laugh because the biology that I rely upon, I learned in grade nine. Like straight up, when, when my teacher in grade nine gave me those pipe cleaners and um, taught me about mitosis and meiosis, about how... Um, the human cell has 46 chromosomes and then meiosis occurs and you get four cells that have 23 chromosomes because they're gametes and then fertilization occurs and you're back to a whole organism at that moment. I don't rely on, on my, my university degree. I rely on what I learned in, in science. And so I, I kind of shoehorn a presentation in every year in our internship about stem cell research just to justify my degree to tell myself that that like $50,000 was worth it. But Realistically, I'm, I'm not relying on my, my degree. I'm relying on what every single one of us learned if we went to high school. And you know what? As, as things change, like I'm sure that there's kids younger and younger learning about the principles of when human life begins, at least. What I'm hearing, Cam, is that for those of us who are listening, myself included, you're saying we don't need a biology degree. We don't need a doctorate in science or biology to understand uh, and to be able to communicate when human life begins. No, not at all. Not at all. You you need to you need to be prepared for conversation because there's more and more people who are going to try to not only circumvent the conversation but also try to get you bogged down in okay, well is it when the DNA mingles? Is it when this happens, when that happens? Like there's going to be people that are going to try to split seconds as to when human life begins. And thankfully you can have a little bit more insight if you read something like the white paper um, by not not the white paper of communist China for the one child policy, but the white paper published by, I don't know why she called it the white paper, but Marine Kondik, Dr. Marine Kondik, a, a doctor of biology and embryology at the University of Colorado, I want to say either University of Colorado or University of Utah. Incredible biologist. She's got a ton of incredible work published, but she's also done some very good stuff clarifying um, kind of the intricacies that some people will try to challenge you on. But no, you definitely don't need a degree in this. Okay, so this this paper that you referenced, Cam, is fascinating because it, it it reminds me of 2012 when a politician here in Canada, in Ontario, Kitchener Centre, 
uh, by the name of Stephen Woodworth made put forward a motion, uh, what we call Motion 312. And this motion called for the formation of a committee to review the declaration in subsection 223-1 of the criminal code, which states that a child becomes a human being only at the moment of complete birth. So this is this is the subsection of the Criminal Code of Canada that I referenced last episode. And this is something that the motion was not trying to overturn, but simply to review. And this motion was thoroughly defeated, defeated in the House of Commons uh, with an interesting note of almost half of the Conservative Party uh, voted against this simple review. So why do you think this is? Are people scared to have this conversation? Oh, people are terrified to have the conversation. Like you said, like this is a 400-year-old piece of legislation that was imported when Confederation occurred, and the Canadians were like, oh, well, we'll just bring in whatever the Brits had. Um, this is 400 years old. Stephen Woodworth presents it. It should be a slam dunk. Like, like this is a um, an absolute winner that, you know what, let's just have a conversation. What do the biologists say? Clearly. Right, because— because we're not we're not having a, a discussion on changing the laws um, to restrict abortion, no. which we would we would support, but um, certainly wouldn't garner as much support in the House of Commons. This is a conversation just to have a conversation. Exactly, and and two hundred and three members of Parliament. So so it was beat two hundred and three to ninety one. Two hundred and three members of Parliament thought, you know what, let's not have this conversation, because they realized the ramifications of that decision, right? That we mentioned at the beginning that we are all biologists, we are all philosophers. The is-ought conundrum. What is something, what ought we do about it? This is something that is tied hand in hand, and abortion advocates across the country recognized that as soon as we defined when human life actually began, we would be compelled to act accordingly. And they know that they don't want that. Right? They know that this is a domino that they do not want to push over. They do not want to topple this, this, this entire chain because while this may have been the last domino erected by the sexual revolution um, that, that um, plagued our society through the 20th century, but if this last domino goes down, then it is going to hit a whole bunch of other dominoes that are going to really challenge the way that we approach contemporary society, whether or not we can have um, the kind of unfettered sexual encounters that, that we are so accustomed to right now. Maybe, maybe not you and I, Peter, um, but so many people in our society, obviously, um, they are terrified of the ramifications of the is question because of all of the ought questions that go along with it. Biology can't tell us what we should do, but it tells us what is a reality. And the human brain, the human heart, the human person is wired towards what is our response? How do we act on that information? And for people who don't want to act because they know what that action will require, they don't want to ask to ask or answer the question of what is that? What is the beginning of human life? When does a human being begin? But what about the biologists? So you referenced that paper a good percentage of the biologists that were um, approached, uh, over 5,000 of them were approached from over 1,000 academic institutions, agreed that human life begins at fertilization. But then you you mentioned the stat, um, I can't remember, what was the number of... of 85%. Of 85%. 85%. Pro-choice supporters. Biologists who are pro-choice supporters. Where does that 
dissonance come in? Why why do they support the view that human life begins at fertilization and support the pro-choice position? There, there's an awful lot that I could say about, in some ways, the elitism that goes along with academia. I, there's a whole lot that I could say, a, a funny story that kind of really hammers home this point. So when I was at university in my third year, I was doing one of our choice chain displays, one of our displays in which we hold a three foot by four foot sign showing the reality of what abortion does to a preborn child. Um, we were holding a bunch of, at that time, there were only first trimester. We had an eight week um, child who'd been killed by an abortion, 10 week and 11 week. And we were doing activism. And I remember seeing one of my biology professors come out of, of um, the, the primary biology building at the University of Victoria. He comes out and there's a bunch of people already standing around talking. And, um, and I said, you know what, this, this is the moment. This is the moment that this professor is going to shatter the hearts and dreams of all of these people. He's going to prove that human life begins at fertilization. He can't deny that. And this is going to be great. And so I asked him, um, I'm not going to name the professor, um, but most of the biology professors at UBIC are, are supportive of abortion. They are definitely part of that 85%. Um, I asked him, like, what do you think about abortion? And he said, oh, I, I completely support abortion. 100%. A woman should be allowed to do whatever she wants with her own body. I said, well, but professor, doesn't human life begin at fertilization? And he said, yeah, obviously. And I said, well, doesn't that make abortion a human rights violation? And he said to me something that was really, really fascinating. He said, they're living humans, but they're not living persons. And it was at that moment that I realized that there was a really good biologist standing in front of me and a really wretched philosopher. That, that quote from the beginning, people are either good at one, both, or neither, philosophy and biology. This guy was incredible at biology, but just wretched at philosophy in realizing the ought statement and saying, you know what, it, it literally only makes sense that human rights begin when the human's life begins. We're, we're going to have episodes in the future talking about the philosophical components that go along with, um, with the abortion conversation. But this guy proved very clearly that you can be a terrible philosopher, and that is what has brought about an abortion acceptance in Canada, right? Like this is cognitive dissonance in its like simplest stage. People know intuitively that human life begins at fertilization. You, when your sister or your neighbor, or your coworker announces that they're pregnant, you never worry about whether or not they're going to deliver a cat or a dog or some other species, right? You know they're pregnant with a human being. You know that when they see the ultrasound, they're going to see five little um, fingers on each hand, five little toes on each foot, um, and and all of their systems developed by eight weeks sort of thing. You know that they're going to have an independent pulse by 21 days approximately after fertilization. You know all of these biological facts. EHD.org, um, the Endowment for Human Development.org, is an incredible site that demonstrates the beauty and the fact of human life prior to birth. And, and it's just a matter of people, Canadians, people around the world, particularly in the Western, um, Western world, being truly terrible philosophers and not understanding consistency, not understanding the, the disconnect between that is a human being factually, but they're not a human being when it comes to how they impact my life, my decisions, that sort of thing. That's why biologists support abortion, because they're 
like you and I and every other person trying to make philosophical statements. And they often have neglected or spurned the philosophical realms of, of um, education to focus and become experts in that area. Yeah, like you mentioned, Cam, we're going to be having an episode in the future talking about uh, philosophical objections and, and just the philosophy surrounding the pro-life position. And one of the things I, I love about what we're doing with this podcast is we're taking some of the difficult information that you shared with us, Cam. I, I know I'm a simple guy. I can't remember everything that you mentioned. I can't remember uh, a super long paper. Uh, I got through just over the abstract um, when you sent it to me. Um, but one of the things we want to do is is take what we've learned and put it into a, um, a coherent and a logically consistent uh, and, and, a, and a simple apologetic method. Um, and so, Cam, for those of us who um, are, are having conversations with people on the streets and, and the person in front of us doesn't know when human life begins, how can we illustrate that in layman's terms? So a really good way to illustrate that is in, in what we call the human rights argument. And, and this is covered extensively in the different um, conversation skills workshops that we offer. It's covered in the study series that we um, now have available both online and for, for community groups. We have it in books and everything. It's four basic questions that can walk people to an acceptance of the pro-life worldview. And the center two are kind of the bread and butter of the pro-life position. And the center two, I'll say all four of them, but we'll focus on the middle two. The first question that I generally ask is, could we agree that all humans should get human rights? We use the language of, of society, of contemporary culture. People embrace the notion of human rights. And so should all humans get human rights? The vast majority of people are going to say, yeah. The second question that's, yeah. I know um, some of us also ask, um, just, to, just to clarify it a little bit, because we often get people coming back and saying, what do you mean human rights? I mean, what, do you, what are you defining human right? And so just clarifying it to say, would you agree that all humans should get the human right to life? Uh, one of the, the, the basic of all the rights that we have. If we don't have that right, no other right matters. If we have that right, uh, all others can be founded upon it. Totally. And, and so I'll, I'll, I'll even up that ante and, and say, sometimes I clarify it even further because some people start asking all these existential questions of like, oh, well, what is life? Like, didn't some philosopher way back when say, give me liberty or give, or give me death? Like, what is life without liberty and all this kind of crazy stuff, whatever. Um, so often I'll clarify, like, what do you mean by human rights? I mean the human right to not be intentionally killed as an innocent human. That's, that's what I'm talking about. Um, so great clarification on that. Second question that starts tying in that biology is if something is growing, couldn't we agree that it must be alive? Can we think of anything that is growing, but not biologically alive? And, and I love getting very fascinating responses to this, right? Like I've, I've had people be like, oh, well, what about icicles? icicles are growing. And I'm like, okay, well, that's a good point. And we'll, we'll touch on that in just a couple minutes here. Um, and, and we'll have some people be like, oh, well, what about, uh, probably the funnest one that I've ever heard is like, what about fires? Fires grow and get bigger. Are they not alive? And, and that's a fascinating question as well. I'll touch on it just a little bit when I talk about construction versus development. But the vast majority of people know exactly what I'm getting at. Yes, if something is growing, especially an entity that is growing in a coordinated, unified capacity, the definition of an organism, as opposed to an organelle or an organ, an organism is a 
collective, cooperating, unified system of growth and development. Um, they'll, they'll often respond with something different that leads very well into the third question. They'll often respond by saying something like, well, grass is growing and you cut your grass, don't you? Uh, what about what about these other living organisms? And in that case, it leads perfectly into that third question, which is if a living organism has human parents, mustn't he or she be human too? Right? That if, if two um, organisms reproduce, their offspring will be of the same species. Every single time, you're never worried, like I said earlier, you're never worried about two humans reproducing and pumping out a, a dog or a cat or an elephant or a dolphin or whatever. Choose your, your organism of choice sort of thing. Um, I feel like every CSPR um, staff member has a different organism that's their go-to. Um, but we know that life comes from parents of the same species. We know that like from way back in Louis Pasteur's time that spontaneous generation isn't a thing. We know that mice don't spontaneously develop out of rags. We know that fruit flies don't spontaneously develop out of fruit. We know that organisms reproduce after their own species. And so that leads us to know that that growth, one cell, to two cell, to four cell, from the moment of fertilization indicates life. And because that living organism has human parents, he or she must be a living human. I'll say that again. Two questions. If... Something is growing. Couldn't we agree that it's alive? Start at the beginning, Cam. Start at the do, – do all four questions. All four questions. Um, and, and the reason I say that is because um, for those of you who are listening, the apologetic method that we use at CCBR um, is really centered around these four questions. This is the – this is apologetics 101. This is what we teach everyone. These are the conversations that we have. And sometimes um, these four questions have been used to change people's minds on abortion alone. Um, we've had clarifying conversations uh, but these four questions are extremely powerful. So hit them up, uh, Cam, one more time. Boom, all four. If if you want to go to a high school and change 35 people's minds or witness 35 people changing their minds on abortion, these four questions are going to be your best friend. Question one, should all human beings get human rights? Number two, if, a li um, if something is growing, isn't it alive? Number three, if that living organism has human parents, isn't he or she human? Number four, wouldn't that make abortion a human rights violation? Four questions that are going to be not only the greatest catalyst within your conversations towards drawing people towards the pro-life worldview, but these are, because they're so effective, these are your get-out-of-jail-free cards. I don't know how many of you are still playing Monopoly, but this is your get-out-of-jail-free card. Because regardless of what somebody says to you, Ideally, you're going to respond to them. You're, you're going to find common ground, make an analogy, ask a question. We're going to talk about that later in another episode. Ideally, you're going to be able to respond to them. If you ever get hit by something that you don't know or don't understand, what better way to advance the conversation by saying, this might sound like a funny question, but do you believe in human rights? Yeah, for all human beings, right? And then you're straight into the human rights argument. You redirect the conversation towards the humanity of the preborn. You go to the heart of the conversation. Those four questions are going to save your bacon. And more than that, they're going to save babies. And babies so are better than bacon, had... just so you know. Babies are so much better than, <laughs> I mean, to have in the world. Obviously, we're not eating babies. That's super messed up. Um, save babies, save your bacon in conversation. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> 
Yeah, so I've had these conversations in the streets. Most of the people that I've talked to, I've, I've asked uh, these four questions in some form or another. But I, often I'll get people push back a little bit, uh, perhaps saying something along the lines of, okay, but they're still not human or they're a clump of cells or they're so small. Um, and any other objection uh, that they might have. There are many of them. Um, for those who challenge this common sense approach, the, these four questions, what we call the human rights argument, how can we clarify? How can we ask some clarifying questions or, or bring forward some clarifying analogies? Yeah, I, I think it's super good because this is something that not a ton of people think about, right? Like, like this is something that strikes people as it can't possibly be that simple. We've been debating abortion for decades now. How can it be as simple as four very basic questions? And so a couple of routes for clarification that I think that we can really integrate. First one is what we at CCBR call before at after. We recognize that there are three different times in which human life can begin. Before fertilization, at fertilization, or after fertilization. And so I'll ask people of like, you know, before you met me at activism, when, when you walked up, did you assume that I sprung into existence as a 30-year-old dude? No. You assumed that a year ago I was 29 years old. And a year before that, I was 28 years old. And, and hopefully, a year before that, I was 27 years old. And, and you could trace my life back and back and back. We know that teenagers don't pop into existence as teenagers. We know that toddlers don't pop into existence as toddlers. And so we can trace our life back further and further and further. And how far can we trace our life back? We can trace it back to the moment of fertilization. Because we know that even an embryo, even a fetus, um, human embryos and human fetuses come from younger versions of themselves, right? Younger, less developed um, human beings. And so we can trace this back to the moment of fertilization, but can we trace it back any further? This is something that comes up at, at high school all the time. We got kids that are learning about sexuality and all that fun stuff. And, and they throw out stuff that is um, mildly um, disconcerting and uh, mildly disturbing as well. But, but I mean, how many times have I been asked at activism? Oh, well, if a guy masturbates, is he killing a whole bunch of, of humans because those sperm are dying? Or as a woman goes through her cycle, is she killing a human being? Can we trace human life back before fertilization? And I remember having a conversation with this guy and absolutely blowing his mind by saying, okay, well, whose genetic code is in a sperm cell? And he said, well, the father's. And I said, no, he's not a father yet. Fertilization doesn't happen. It's just the guy's DNA, just like any of the other cells in his body. It's his DNA. Whose DNA is in the mother's, uh, the, um, in the egg cell. Again, he said the mother, and I corrected him and said, no, she's not a mother yet. Fertilization hasn't happened. Um, it's just her genetic code. It is um, made up of her um, genetic code. It is doing functions that fulfilled the extension of her body. You cannot trace human life back before fertilization. And actually, an interesting clarification I want to make. So I, I saw this really cutesy kind of, not quite a meme, but like a, an info kind of thing on a pro-life um, Facebook page. And I know that the, the authors of it were very well-meaning, but they, they offered a bit of insight into um, human egg cells are developing even within the developing child. And so as an embryo, that embryo is actually developing egg cells that she will, um, once she's gone through puberty, start cycling um, and 
will maybe one day be fertilized to become a human being. And yet this pro-life author had said, um, even while your mother was in your grandmother's womb, the, her egg cells were there. And so you were there as, and so your three generations were co um, connected in that your mother was inside of your grandmother. And because your mother had egg cells in her body, you were there. And, and that, that's bad biology. That is incorrect. And, and I, I try to politely correct them. They, they received it very well. They, they took it down. I encouraged them not to share it around. I'm sure some of you might've seen the meme um, or, or the, the little graphic. Um, we can trace our life back to the moment of fertilization. And there's, there's another route, um, Peter, I, I know that you've mentioned that, that you guys use this in Ontario quite frequently, the Polaroid analogy. Do you want to dive yeah, into the Polaroid right. or do you want to do that? Yeah, sure. It's it's a helpful analogy to show people. Um, well, let me, let me get into it. So we're having a conversation. People uh, are still not really sure where we're coming from or they don't agree with us. Um, so this is what I'll ask. Have you ever heard, do you know what a Polaroid camera is? And maybe like four years ago, people didn't know what Polaroids were anymore, but now they're kind of making a comeback. So Hashtag all the high hipsters. school girls know about hipsters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, all the high school girls know about them, and um, they're making a comeback. People know about Polaroid cameras. So then I say, let's say that you and I were out in the woods. Uh, I have my Polaroid camera with me. You have your iPhone. Um, and, and we're going through, and, and we look in front of us, and we see the most unique sight ever. Bigfoot is right in front of us. And and your cell phone's in your pocket. It's deep in your pocket, but I've been prepared my my. Polaroid camera is directly in front of my face the entire time, just waiting for the perfect opportunity, just waiting for the perfect photos. And, and, I, and I, I turn I, towards Bigfoot, I frame Bigfoot, and I push the button, and I capture that moment. Uh, people have been wondering for centuries whether this being actually exists, and you and I, we're out, in, we're out in the woods, and we have proof that it does. And so you're like, you're, you're so excited. Uh, you... You're like, oh, let me see that, let me see that. I'm like, just give me a sec. The, the, the photo comes out of my camera, and I give it to him, and he's like, what? This is nothing. This is completely blank. There's nothing here. And he rips it up and throws it away, and that's it. And I look at him. I'm still having this conversation with this person. I look at him, and I say, how could you? I had captured the perfect moment. And he says, no, no, there was, like, nothing there. I'm like, yes, everything was captured in that moment, in that Polaroid camera, and it was on that photo it just needed time to develop. And so when I'm having conversations with others uh, on the streets about this, they, they immediately get this most of the time, that everything about that unique hu human being, everything about myself, everything about you, Cam, everything about the people we talk to is captured in the moment of fertilization. Uh, all of our chromosomes are there. Our fingerprint is there. Uh, our gender, our, our sex is determined. We just need time to develop uh, to the point where we are today. And every stage after that, until about uh, 25 or 26 or 27 years of age, we're developing um, in, into who we are today. And so the question after that is, if we know that everything about that human being, if we know, if we know that everything about me and everything about you was present at that moment, at that very beginning, uh, back to the question, wouldn't it be a violation of our right to life to end our lives, to... to to decapitate or de dismember or disembowel us. That's that's the Polaroid analogy. That's the Polaroid analogy. That that's a pretty good delivery of the Polaroid analogy. I got to admit, I don't think anybody will ever top Stephanie Gray 
in her delivery of the Polaroid analogy. I heard it dozens of times. She, um, as many of you would probably know, her her father, I believe, is is from Scotland. And she puts on this incredible Scottish accent. She talks all about going to Loch Ness and seeing the Loch Ness monster. And, oh man, I close my eyes and I can feel the breeze coming across that lake and the the hardcore Scottish accent. She does such a good job putting me in that you did a pretty good job of get me get me to believe that Bigfoot was right in front of me, but I don't know if anybody will ever top Stephanie on her delivery of the Polaroid analogy. Yeah, I agree. I've heard it as well, and and you almost believe it. Oh man, <laughs> you know, yeah, you, you buck a trip at, right in the moment, yeah, uh, because you want to see this 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 creature as well. Exactly, and and I think that in in some ways it it d- demonstrates that point of the difference between. Um, Construction and development, right? Like I mentioned before, as, as we talk about um, the, the Polaroid, as we talk about that icicle or the fire that I was talking about earlier, what is happening? How is a Polaroid or how is human development or any kind of um, animalia development different than construction? Because something mm-hmm. was captured, like you said, at that very moment that is different than building something. And so a lot of people say like, oh, well, um, it, it's not a human until it has all of these different parts. And, and we have to look into, is there a difference? Yeah, between construction and development. And you look at construction, you look at like, if you're building a car, you're building a car. My, my buddy, Alex, who's in the office right beside me here, um, he's an incredible guy. He runs the internships here in, in Calgary. He's a huge car guy. Um, he, he worked as a mechanic. Um, he is an absolute rock star. And his favorite car, my understanding, is Chevy Corvette. It, it has a balance of um, it has a balance of speed and elegance and power and all this kind of stuff. And he loves it. But he acknowledges that a pile of nuts and bolts and framework and and upholstery sitting in a pile on a, a GM factory floor doesn't constitute a a Corvette. What is necessary to turn that into a Corvette? An external force acting on it. So yes, all the materials are there, but an external force has to um, act on it for it to actually become a Corvette. That's radically different than development because who is directing the growth and progression of a living organism? True, the parents are providing the, the nutrients, the oxygen, the waste removal that is necessary for all living organisms, born and preborn. And yet, this is something that is an internal force. The direction is provided by an internal force to that organism. And, and that's the difference between construction and development. Um, and I think that this is something interesting that, that people try to pick apart. I mean, how many times have I heard in conversation, um, there's a difference between acorns and oak trees. You don't sit under an acorn for shade. And I think that's true, right? We, we don't sit under acorns for shade, but we also don't ask um, toddlers to perform surgery. Why don't we sit under acorns for shade? because they're not old enough to be able to fulfill that function. Do we value humans because of their ability? Are we um, ableists who say, you don't get human rights, we don't care about you, unless you're able to do something that profits me? No, we've been down that road a ton of times before in society, and 
it's an ugly road. It is an ugly road strewn with corpses from different people who thought they were really smart and were really just really savage when it came to their regard for human life. And so we don't sit under acorns for, for shade. We do sit under oak trees for shade because they have manifest different abilities, different characteristics as they have aged to be able to provide different um, kind of assets, I suppose. Again, we don't ask toddlers to do, um, we don't ask toddlers to do surgery for us for good reason. Um, that That's often the route that I go. I know that, again, in the East, you guys talk about um, cakes in the oven, which is something that I, I rarely talk about in, in Western Canada. And I think that you guys have a really good way of spinning that. So how do you guys talk about cakes in the oven in describing the difference between construction development and how it relates to human life? Yeah, it's it's similar. Um, the, the the construction versus development conversation that you brought up is extremely helpful for considering that um, because you're, you're, you have an external force putting together the ingredients. You have an external force uh, doing everything that's necessary, putting the, the cake in the oven, uh, the external force of the oven, preparing that cake, and then you have a cake afterwards. Um, and, and for those who are, are willing to be intellectually honest, you can see that there's a very clear distinction between um, having, having an organism that uh, has a beginning and develops within the natural environment uh, that it's in by itself versus something like a cake or something like um, you know, anything else that's constructed, really, um, which really, which needs a lot of external ingredients, external forces uh, to, to make that cake what it is. I, I love that. I love again that you bring this up um, because we often hear in the streets people say things like, I don't think they should get human rights until you name it. You know, they have brain activity, they have a heartbeat, they have sentience, uh, they have any number of things. And so this construction versus development really helps us to understand what it is that they're trying to say. Uh, that when they're bringing this up, they're, they're imagining human development as a construction site, a house or a car or anything else that's created. Yeah. And it also helps us avoid getting into sticky situations by misrepresenting biology. Um, I, I've done activism in different communities across Canada where we're, we're working. Some of the volunteers are working so desperately to defend everything they're saying that they end up making inaccuracies. I, I remember there was this time that that a, an older woman was standing beside me at one of our choice changes plays. And, and this person was grilling them on you have to have a brain to get human rights. And, and she was trying to push back by saying that an embryo has a brain, a fully developed brain. And she was losing this guy, and rightly so, because we have to acknowledge the realities of human development, that an early embryo does not have a fully developed brain. We don't need to be afraid of that. We don't need to be afraid of the fact that we're not fully developed at the moment of fertilization because we're not afraid of the fact that we're not fully developed at the moment of birth. We're not fully developed fully developed at the moment. Uh, I don't know if it's a moment, but but at, at puberty sort of thing, right? Like right. we don't have to be afraid of this when we can convey the difference between construction and development. It's not a matter of a computer is not a computer until you insert the hard drive or a car is not a car until you insert the engine. That's not how development works. And when we can clearly understand that and convey that to somebody that you know, this is a natural development within the life cycle of an organism, like you said, that um, 
brain waves and the ability to feel pain and survive outside of the womb are legitimate stages of development, but they're no different fundamentally than puberty or developing um, the ability to balance. I mean, my, my daughter's eight months old right now. She's desperately trying to crawl across the room and she's flopping all over the place. And like, she's not fully developed, but that shouldn't mean that, that she doesn't get human rights because she's not as developed as you or I, Peter. Right. It's funny. I, I'm just thinking about my son who's just over a year and he's trying to walk right now and he's doing the same thing all over a room. <laughs> um, fall, falling and getting back up and doing a few steps and falling. So so we know this. We, we, we have this distinction now, uh, construction versus development. How do you generally bring that up in a conversation? Is there a particular question you ask uh, or what's what's the way that you like? How do you navigate your way through the conversation to get the person you're talking to? Uh, to see that there is a, a very clear distinction between these two. Mm, yeah, it's a good point. So it, it always stems from a, a, a misunderstanding of those two central human rights arguments. Like, I'm never going to bring it up proactively because I don't think that it's as clear as we can be. I think those two questions, if something's growing, isn't it alive? If that living organism has human parents, wouldn't he or she be a human being as well? Um I think that those are, are your bread and butter where you want to focus the conversation. If somebody's not understanding that and saying, well, they're, they're not human yet or, or this kind of thing, sometimes I'll just kind of bridge the gap by saying, could we agree that we are not fully developed when we're born? I'll, I'll, I'll concede the point. Yes, I agree that we are not fully developed when we're eight weeks old or when we're eight months old. But are you willing to agree that we're not fully developed when we're eight years old, something like that. And that really helps them understand that this development is a process. I, I love a quote that we, we use in all of our literature, our postcards, our choice chain brochures, everything. We use this quote from a textbook that, that is used at the University of British Columbia Medical School, several other prominent universities in Canada, as well as many in the States as well. It's called The Developing Human um, by Dr. More Persaud and Turveau. Um, And literally the first paragraph of the first page of the first chapter says human development begins at fertilization. And it goes on to say it continues long after birth. And so I help them understand that, that this development is a process that is radically different than the building of a car, that, that we are so much more dynamic. We are so much more impressive than, um, than, than building a car because we have a conscience. We have a moral component. We, we have if ought conundrums, right? Like if, if we were built, then we would have no responsibility. We'd have no culpability. We are so much more impressive. You could say that we were fearfully and wonderfully made, I suppose. Um, I suppose you could say that. <laughs> um, in a very beautiful way, um, that that is is very very good and so that, that's the way that i bring it up in conversation if people kind of belabor the point then i'll draw it out even more thoroughly maybe i'll bring up the polaroid analogy and say hey is there a distinction between this can we agree that this picture was established at the moment of capture all it needed to do was time for development that sort of thing yeah so this is a lot cam uh, you, sh- you shared a-, a good amount of information with us. You've shared the human rights argument, which, as I mentioned, is one of the key tenets of the ap- apologetics that we use here. It's what what all the staff use when we're on the streets, and, and it's what we teach our interns uh, and all the people that are that take part in our projects, all the people that volunteer with us and with groups uh, around the country. 
um, as they and as we uh, seek to defend the preborn children uh, from the horror of abortion. So what, what can we do with this information? You can have conversations. You can reach out to people, whether, I mean, obviously right now, as, as we're recording this, we're in the middle of a COVID-19 pandemic. And so we have limited opportunities maybe to, to interact in person with our um, coworkers and, and neighbors, maybe even our family members. But this is something that we can integrate into our interactions online and on um, whatever other platforms we have opportunity, whether in person or over, over the internet. Um, these are tools that you need to use to challenge the status quo. Because I think it's important to know how do pro-life advocates win? How do we transform our culture? And how do we lose? Because we can lose. But I am confident that with these tools and with God's grace, we can win. How we lose is if the conversation doesn't happen. Abortion advocates would love nothing more for this conversation to be dead. How many times have we heard it said the debate is over? If we accept that notion, if we decline to use the information that we've talked about for the last hour in actually engaging real-life Canadians in conversations about abortion, if we don't do that, then the abortion advocates have already won. We have an obligation not only to the preborn children, but, but far beyond that, we have an obligation to preborn children who will die today and tomorrow and the next day to transform the hearts and minds of Canadians so that we can transform the heart of our nation. And so use these tools in the interactions that you're having. Use these tools, rely on some of the many different resources that CSPR has available. Use these tools to engage the people within your sphere of influence. Thank you. Yes. And as we end this episode, I just want to remind everyone that this really is the question that's at the heart of the abortion debate. The question of when does human life begin? Uh, Cam, you had a great quote earlier on. Um, if the preborn are human, uh, then if the preborn are not human, then no justification for abortion is necessary. But if the preborn are human beings deserving of human rights, then no justification for abortion is adequate. And so this is the question we need to ask. This is the conversation we need to have when we're talking with people on the streets who are defending abortion and who uh, believe in the pro-choice position, the pro-abortion position, that abortion should be a right that women across our society have. There were three resources that I'd like to share with you. Uh, number one is the article that... Uh, or the paper, rather, that Cam mentioned. It's, it's titled Biologists' Consensus on When Life Begins by Stephen Andrew Jacobs. Jonathan Van Maren, our colleague here at CCBR, also wrote a blog on that very thing, uh, which is titled Study Reports That 96% of Biologists Confirm That Human Life Begins at Fertilization. You can find this at www.thebridgehead.ca uh, backslash blog. Go ahead, Cam. Just uh, and if you could leave a comment and ask Jonathan what a bridgehead is, I know that he loves explaining what a bridgehead is, and so please comment that www.thebridgehead.com. Ask him what a bridgehead is. Check out those great articles. Yeah, that's right. www.thebridgehead.ca. Um, Cam also mentioned the human rights argument, which is a great argument. Do learn it. 
uh, memorize it, repeat it, so that you are prepared to have conversations with others. And then I want to share one of CCBR's latest resources, which is a book by our colleague Justina Van Manen titled Stuck, a complete guide to answering tough questions about abortion. This is a comprehensive resource that comes out of years of activism experience, years of having arguments and conversations with people on the streets about abortion, and it highlights in a textbook form the best arguments that we have um, to combat the pro-choice position. Yeah, I, I love this book. I've read a ton of different books about the pro-life position. I've, I've read Scott Klusendorf's Case for Life. I've read Stephanie Graves' um, Love Unleashes Life. I've read Randy Alcorn, Pro-Life Answers to Pro-Choice Questions. I've read a ton of different pro-life books. And Justina does such a good job of drawing all of that information together into a, a single textbook resource. It's so good. It's so accessible. I love those other resources. But if you're going to buy one book, buy this book. If you're only going to buy two books, buy two of these books. Like, like it is that good. And so totally check it out. It is such a great resource for giving you tools that will go above and beyond what we cover here in this podcast. It's phenomenal. That's right. So let your friends know about the pro-life guys. This is episode number two. If you haven't had the chance to listen to episode number one, we encourage you to do so as we share what this podcast is about and what our vision is for it. Check us out at www.prolifeguys.com or on Facebook at The Pro-Life Guys where you can see all of our content and, and learn a little bit more about us. Uh, like I said on last episode, going to theprolifeguys.com just for Cam's bio alone is absolutely <laughs> worth it. We'd love to hear your feedback. Uh, as we've mentioned before, this podcast is not for us. It's not so that we can have a good time, uh, although we are having a good time but it's most definitely for you so that you can learn how to defend preborn children and have conversations that are both effective and compassionate. So we'd love to hear your feedback, whether that's on our website, prolifeguys.com, or whether that is through our Facebook page. Do get in touch with us. We'd love to hear you, uh, what you have to say. We'd love to hear that you're listening to what we're doing and get involved. Uh, on CCBR's website and thekilling.ca, there's a Get Involved tab. Find out what groups are doing activism in your community, what's all going on where you live, at your university, uh, in your hometown, and get involved so that people in your community also learn the truth about abortion and what is happening to preborn children. My name is Peter Boss. I am the host of the Pro-Life Guys. I'm with my co-host, the expert of the show, Cameron Cote. We thank you so much for listening, and we hope you join us again next episode. Take care.